Good day, beautiful people. We want to thank the dedicated listeners and viewers of Kiko's Freethinkers Forum. We have a current audience outreach of 64 different countries, including all 50 states. Kiko's Freethinkers Forum is available on most podcasting platforms, so subscribe to your podcasting platform of choice and our official YouTube video channel. Consider subscribing and telling your friends and family. And remember, you can't unthink free thought. Good afternoon, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Kiko's Freethinkers Forum. We're joined by a very special guest, a repeat guest. His name is Mike Termont, and you all probably know him from episode 34. I recommend my listeners and viewers to go back and listen to the episode and watch episode 34 with Mike Termont. He's running as the Libertarian Party candidate for president of the United States in 2024, and he previously ran in the U.S. Senate the U.S. House in the state of Florida in District 20 um, in in 2021. He obtained his Ph.D. in economics at the George Washington University. And we talked a little bit about his background um, in that episode 34. He also served as a police officer for 11 years in Broward County, Florida. And so we have a lot more to talk about to continue what to basically continue what we left off from the episode 34, this episode 55, which should be just as dynamic, if not more dynamic, than episode 34. But I just want to say welcome to the show, Mike, and we appreciate your acceptance of our invitation. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Thanks for reaching out. I'm uh, quite happy to to be with you. Yes, I enjoyed episode 34. I don't think I realized it was number 34, but uh, I appreciated being on with you earlier. So uh, I hope this is not the last time. No, it won't be for sure. Um, I've been following your campaign pretty closely. And um, I've learned so much. I was telling Mike off camera, um, I've been researching some stuff, some Ludwig von Mises and um, looking into some um, economics because my viewers know that I read a lot. I do that. I read more now than I did when I was in the PhD program a few years ago. Well, you get to read what you want now. Kiko has time to read what he wants, exactly. When when you're in a PhD program, you read what you're told to read. And then, of course, you have to research. uh, Did you write a dissertation for your program? What was it about? Uh, My dissertation was about defining Black masculinities. I had to come up with parameters to to define Black masculinities in Caribbean and Latin American literature. Oh, no, that's actually kind of interesting. Uh, we should do an episode talking about that sometime. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, you know, when you told me that you wanted to talk a little bit about economics and, and you wanted to ask a few questions about uh, Austrian economics, one of the schools in which uh, I grew up a little bit, um, it occurred to me to pick out a few books uh, off the shelf uh, to recommend to you and 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 your viewers. And uh, I remembered that you had an academic background, so I know that you're used to reading a little bit more nerdly stuff than than most people. Um, so I'm going to make a, a couple of recommendations. As a matter of fact, now that it's top of mind, can I mention TM right now? Yes, no, um, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, and, and I need to say one other thing funny. I mean, funny to me, it won't be funny to you. Um, in the context of having forgotten all but the substance of our earlier conversation. I remembered what we talked about. I remembered some of the things that you said. I remember some of the things that I said, but I forgot 
you're, you're going to find this funny. I forgot that you're black. And now, now this is not important except for the following reason, right? One of the books I picked out is one of my favorites. I think it's one of the most important books uh, of its time, written by an extremely important economist, Walter Williams. Walter okay. Williams, yeah, uh, wrote what's called The State Against Blacks. And I picked it out, but I didn't want you to think I picked it out because you're black. Okay. <laughs> no, so no, for a good. moment, uh, do your best to pretend like you're not, so I don't embarrass <laughs> myself. But this is uh, the reason this is such an important book is not because Walter was black. Uh, he recently passed away. Um, fantastic economist, by the way. It, not because what he wrote about was the black experience. Indeed, most of what he wrote about was not about the black experience. Um, the reason this book is so important is because the stuff that he writes about in the state against blacks is actually bad public policy that affects everybody. Mm -hmm. And not just in the United States, but a lot of stuff about where the welfare system has gone wrong, how it has affected people in ways in which well-meaning people did not intend, right? And, and so from the standpoint of an economist, this is all about bad public policy. And interestingly, in the decades since he wrote this book, we have seen uh, that the bad public policy that that did so much to affect black communities in the United States in really negative ways have affected other communities uh, also. So I would urge folks to read this book if you're either interested in the black experience or any other experience in the United States or any other experience anywhere in the world because bad public policy is bad public policy. Uh, bad government is colorblind. Yeah, remember that. <laughs> yeah. You should use that as a slogan. You need to put that in your um, campaign. <laughs> that's not bad. That's, that's not bad. Stupid is is stupid does stupid does. is colorblind. Um, the the other things this is this I recommend for you in particular even more than your readers. Okay, Hayek was arguably the most important student of von Mises. Mm -hmm. Von Mises was one of the founders of the Austrian School of Economics. Very uh, skeptical of government. Not to say that he did not view his government as evil so much as well-meaning people not having the expertise and competence that they wish they had. And so there's skepticism to be had about how they're able to positively affect an economy. Hayek was his most important student and a bridge to the United States. Hayek studied under von Mises in Austria, then came to the United States at the University of Chicago and was one of the mentors from whom uh, many in, in what became known as the Chicago School of Thought, uh, from whom they learned, Milton Friedman most famously. Mm -hmm. um, and Hayek talks a lot about why socialism doesn't work as a practical matter, not from the standpoint of ethics so much, not from the standpoint of these people who try it are evil, just why it doesn't work so well. Very important book. That's a good book for you. A little bit, little bit nerdly. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now for everybody, economics in one lesson. 
it sounds easier than it is, right? But it's not exactly one less. It's it's uh, several chapters. You know, it's probably 150 pages. But it's written by a non-economist. It's written uh, Henry Hazlitt. Uh, was a uh, journalist at heart. I think he was an economist at heart, but he was a journalist by profession and wrote this from the standpoint of what everyone should understand about the difficulties of controlling an economy as opposed to letting people make decisions on their own. Very important book and very easy for everybody to read. Then there's another book that I don't have on my shelf I mean, I probably do, but nobody wants to sit here for 15 minutes waiting for me to look for it. <laughs> Milton and Rose Friedman, Rose was his wife. Milton Friedman wrote late 70s, maybe 1979, 1980. The first book I ever read about economics called Free to Choose, which became the basis for a series of videos that a lot of uh, your viewers will enjoy watching. They're not as interesting as your videos. I don't want to set the bar too high. I don't want your audience to get disappointed. They're not that good. They're good. They're good. Uh, and I think they're like in black and white. We're really going back uh, a while. But Milton Friedman did a bunch of videos called Free to Choose, all about why people's lives are better when you let people make their own decisions. That's the basic theme. Okay, and then one more book, which is a little bit off of economics. So maybe this is the next time you and I speak. But uh, I do find this to be, I have found this to be a useful book, which is why it's all uh, banged up. It's called The Libertarian Reader. It's uh, assembled by a guy named David Boaz, who works for a think tank in Washington, with which some of your readers may be familiar, but maybe not, uh, called the Cato Institute. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, which is a libertarian think tank. And he put this together for people like me who are lazy, who want to read a little bit about each of many authors. So um, if you just wanted, you know, a few pages from James Madison and a few J pages from John Stuart Mill, uh, David has, you probably can't see that so good because of the lighting, but David has put together a very long book which is a collection of, of dozens of readings about how people have thought about libertarianism, allowing people to make decisions for themselves over the years with a very American bent. So okay. you have uh, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson talking about some basic concepts and some economists. So that's kind of fun. Those are a few uh, recommendations there uh, in case anybody wants to learn more about economics in your audience. I appreciate that those plugs because um, even and I'm going to link Mike's information after the episode description on um, the Gold New Deal site and his um, official campaign site, which um, the Gold New Deal is embedded within that. Um, there's also some other references made as well to writings Thomas Sowell, I think, and um, some other people um, as well. But um, we have yeah. a lot anything to by Thomas Sowell is worth reading. Um... I wouldn't even make a recommendation. I would pick something at random because so often it's not even the subject. It's just the way, and, and by the way, your audience needs to be told that you and I don't pick out authors just because they're black, just because the <laughs> two or three guys that we picked out so far that are our favorites happen to be black. That's a complete coincidence. Um, but the fact that they are able to write about the American experience and do so in a way that is so 
simultaneously thoughtful and analytic sets people like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams uh, head and shoulders above uh, so many. Um, that it's the way that they think more sometimes even than the particular topic that they're going after. So it's a joy just to read how it is that they think through certain things. I was telling Spike uh, Cohen, because I've interviewed him twice, and I told him the first episode um, that we ever uh, interacted with together that uh, I had a misconception myself um, years ago about what libertarianism was and is. And um, it, it's a learning process for people. But from the outside, I was like, is there like any sort of like diversity within libertarian circles? And the more I discover, I'm like, no, there's lots of people in libertarian movements. It's just that um, it's not advertised the same way. It's not broadcast the same way. But um, there's definitely well diversity in thought and um you know visibility there is but I'm, i really care more about the thought process than anything that's what ultimately matters um because policies like you said apply to everybody you know not just one group of people but i was thinking about um von mises some um before we transition into you know some of your actual policies on your side and stuff but i was telling you how von mises interacts a lot with um i guess the so-called opposition who would be marx but it's interesting because Marx was basically dying by the time he was born. Like Mises was only a year and a half old when Karl Marx died. And yeah. so there's really no connection like crossing paths with them like physically, but their ideas cross paths a lot. You know, they dialogue with each other a lot. And I think that's the most interesting thing. Like even Marx, um, Marx wasn't explicitly anti-capitalist all the time he actually argued that capitalism is necessary. Now, the vehicle he wanted to take wasn't ultimately capitalism, but he saw it as like a base, like it has to be there in order for us to accomplish this. I just think that though, just the way we have to think of ideology is not some more like this is this and that is that, but that there's a constant connection between the two, you know, whether you agree with one side or the other. That's well said. It's also worth remembering that in both the case of von Mises and in the case of Marx, these were guys who, uh, first of all, neither one was a great writer. I think that needs to be said, <laughs> especially Marx. Marx was horrible. Um, I think it needs to be said that in both cases, their objective was not so much to convince someone of their thoughts in a political context, they were each trying to figure out how the world worked and to therefore be able to predict in the future what that might mean, especially Marx. A lot of people read Marx today, I believe incorrectly, a little bit incorrectly in the sense of trying to use it to say, this is the way we should do things. Mm -hmm. And what he was really trying to figure out, I, I honestly... I think Marx would be embarrassed by today's Marxists um, because I think that he would have to say, no, I was not trying to convince everyone that the world sucks so bad that I, I believe that I want a revolution. What he was trying to say is that there's enough going wrong and going wrong in a certain direction that it seems to me 
that revolution is the most likely outcome and resolution of some of these forces. Remember the context in which he was working, you know, the Industrial Revolution. And there are those who say today that were it not for the rise of successful trade unions, labor unions, right, he would have been right. There would have been revolution if there was no other way to resolve issues. You know, mm -hmm. he probably did not correctly anticipate the rise of the powerful labor unions. He probably did not uh, anticipate correctly fairly muscular governments run by people like Franklin Roosevelt, <laughs> right? That really used the government to do certain things that, you know, people like me, I look back on it and say it was a disaster, but you have to admit that the rise of the unions and the imposition of left-wing-ish governments meant that revolution uh, was forestalled because of certain other ways to resolve certain types of issues while capitalism was still getting on its feet. You know, capitalism is what someone like me would call, you know, the economic manifestation of freedom. And when we go through big turbulent changes like the Industrial Revolution, those adjustments are nasty. There's just no, I mean, there's no, there's no way to be a sympathetic human being and not appreciate. Uh, there's a lot of disaster a lot when, when things are disjointed, when, when things are disrupted, when you go through profound change, it can be very ugly and very hard on a lot of people. That does not mean that we don't need to go through it. It just means uh, it's going to suck. Mm -hmm. And the problem with government intervention to make everyone feel better is, number one, you can prevent the change from happening that everyone needs in the long run to have happen. And it also means that uh, the policies you put in place to make the transition smoother, those policies sometimes end up permanent and therefore undermine uh, the benefit, the value of the change that the economy needs to bring to bear in the long run. And so it's it's hard to back up on policies that that were no longer needed. I would put things in like Social Security in that category. You know, uh, Social Security is probably a bad idea whose time has come and gone. Um, but we all appreciate why it was put in place in the first place. You know, um, that's not to say it's a good idea, but we all we all get it tremendous amount of migration from rural to urban family structures were not the same as they used to be. People were unable to keep up work uh, until their oldest of ages. It was a difficult environment for families, therefore, to take care of elderly. And there was a lot of sympathy generated politically. And so Social Security arose understandably i still would argue that it was not the right solution but we understand the forces uh but now it's just so anachronistic that uh it it holds us back and yet is difficult to uh to replace it and difficult even to have a conversation around it so anyway um all that is to say yes von mises was reacting to marx and putting into place a lot of thoughts about how he saw how the world worked 
And it would do us well to remember some of those lessons. Economists are not trained in Austrian school thought these days, but we well serve to remember that von Mises was not just skeptical about government intervention, he was skeptical about the way economists perform their functions, uh, the way economists go about their business, evaluating and measuring and testing things. And uh, if you just look at you know, what he said in those days about not being able to model with mathematics the way people behave, it's so true. I mean, it is so true. And we we march ahead with hubris when we think that we can evaluate how things are going to happen. And we get it wrong over and over and over again. I think that we're just quite arrogant as economists and policymakers and, and academics like you and like me and uh, people who think that we figured out how the world works and we can model it with mathematics. And the truth is that it's very, very difficult to do so. And a few reminders from the 1940s are not a bad thing. Yes, um, you said a lot there. And I, I think the, the biggest thing I took away from it, honestly, after reading, I read a lot of bureaucracy. I read um, his work, Socialism. And I, I, I actually had to reread it because, again, you have to definitely contextualize everything. I mean, I know that as a, as a reader of literature, that you have to consider the historicity of anything. Yeah. And I think that's something that's completely um, void and a lot of our um, terminology and nomenclature today, especially, that's why I don't even engage on Twitter, really, because um, it, it's so dumbed down now, and it's just, it becomes just shouting matches versus other people. It's just, it's crazy. Even within the same, you're on the same team, and you guys are just screaming at each other just all the time, it seems, constantly. And um, it's very sad. That's really well said. I observed this just yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw two people trying to agree and it was hard for them even to agree because they were talking about different things. It was just, <laughs> it is, it's really, and, and it's really broken down the dialogue of the country and this forum, the goal is to um, educate first and foremost, but also to engage different audiences um, to sort of give that person their own free thought, you know, to come to their own decision and not just, because somebody told you to say this or because the libertarian told this person to scream socialism and the socialist told this person to scream, oh, you you mean capitalists. I mean, we try to avoid the binaries. I think if we can just limit the binaries and think things through a little bit more like contextually, people would have a better appreciation at the very least have a better respect um, of a healthy dialogue as opposed to just jumping to these crazy conclusions and just screaming at people. Well, you're exactly right. And if we remember that the vast majority of people with whom we deal, uh, I want to back off from 100%, but the vast majority of people with whom we work and, and argue are well-intentioned, right? Uh, I don't think for the most part, we're typically arguing uh, over whether or not we want better lives for fellow Americans and for citizens around the world. If we if we try to remember that, uh, I think that it helps your ears stay open. So often our ears are closed waiting to strike with our next argument as opposed to hearing what it is that someone else is worried about. And even if you don't agree with them, it might teach you something to understand what it is that they're upset about. 
A hundred percent. I wanted to transition a little bit into, but we're going to touch some of these issues that Von Mises talked about um, when we talk about inflation and uh, monetary policy. We're going to get some into that. But I want to um, get my audience sort of up to par with how does the libertarian nomination process work out? What ultimately goes from point A to point B when we determine who's the nominee for yep. vice president and president? Yeah, uh, we have an open convention in May of the election year. Uh, it, by the way, uh, I can't even get the first sentence out without bumping into the first controversy. People inside of our party are upset that the convention is so late. You know, May is relatively late, just six weeks, six weeks, six months. Well, and indeed, it's uh, Memorial Day. So it's really more like uh, five months from the mm -hmm. general election which means that whoever the candidate is, that that uh, open convention across Memorial Day weekend chooses the nominee. Whoever the nominee is uh, only has five months to think about everything you have to do. Build a team, build an apparatus, raise money, um, and, and then uh, launch a campaign with uh, advertising and media relations and and the travel, which can't even be uh, scheduled yet until uh, you're the nominee, there's a whole heck of a lot that has to be done in, in those first couple of weeks. And then you've got four and a half months left. So it's it's really uh, too late. So anyway, to, to answer your question, it is an open convention. There are fewer than a thousand delegates. The delegates come from all 50 states. The states Libertarian Party membership chooses the delegates. So in this sense, it's different from the Republican Party and the Democratic Party that have primaries to decide who the delegates are going to be that are pledged to a candidate, right? In our case, we don't have any binding primaries. We typically don't have any primary votes at all. But uh, even if there's a, a primary, it's really nothing more than a straw vote just uh, to see what people are thinking. But at the individual state conventions, each state will have a convention sometime between October and April. Each state will have its membership get together and select a certain number of delegates. And the number of delegates each state gets is in proportion to the number of uh, registered members it has in the Libertarian Party. So if you're a big state like uh, Texas, you have a lot of delegates. Uh, I don't actually know what the number is, uh, 50, 60 or 70 out of the 900 and something from around the United States, uh, 50 or 60 or 70, some number like this come from Texas. The Texas membership, maybe a couple of hundred people will get together at a Texas convention and vote on who they want their delegates to be. And then those delegates can vote for a presidential nominee at will. They can vote for whomever they want to vote for. So mm -hmm. having said that, uh, there are something like uh, I've been told there are as many as 20 individuals that have filed with the FEC to run for the Libertarian Party presidential nomination. I find that hard to believe because only about four or five am I aware of. Right. Um, but uh, I'm told that there are plenty of others. And that number is uh, growing every week. So the object of the game is to introduce yourself to the people who are likely to be delegates representing each state and to demonstrate that you can conduct a, a campaign 
that you can conduct a campaign that does a good job of representing the party, both in terms of messaging and professionalism, and to demonstrate that the candidate uh, himself or herself is someone that has uh, the requisite uh, credibility and professionalism to adequately represent the party. So uh, it's been part and parcel of my campaign to try to make the case, and indeed it's the reason I'm in the campaign, is to make the case that we need to combine two things. One is uh, hyper-professionalism and credibility. I've had two background careers in public service and public policy, one as an economist, uh, one as a police officer. So I believe that that's extremely important. And the reason I, I believe that that's important is because I think the American public is not going to give you the time of day. They're not gonna give you a look unless they believe that you have the background, the requisite qualifications, if you will, to potentially go all the way. Americans only pay attention to the presidential races uh, because they wanna see who wins, right? Uh, they're not taking a philosophy seminar. So if they think that you don't have an opportunity to at the very least disrupt the system or threaten to go all the way, then why should they pay attention? Mm -hmm. uh, there's no reason why they would. So you have to run a campaign with a credible candidate and a campaign with a lot of professionalism. And then the, the second thing, that I think is absolutely critical is to run a fairly bold platform that completely differentiates from the other parties. We have made the mistake in the past in the Libertarian Party of having run candidates that had a lot of overlap with Republicans and Democrats. Mm -hmm. I understand the psychology that suggests, well, those parties are big and powerful. If we can be a little bit like them, you know, we'll get some of their runoff. But the truth is that people don't like to waste their votes. If they want to vote for someone who's fiscally conservative and they believe the Republicans are, why should they vote for you? Why don't I vote for a winner? And similarly, if uh, if you're a Democrat and you still believe the Democratic Party is socially liberal, then again, I don't have any reason to vote for a libertarian. So uh, I believe that we have to run a platform that's very much... Uh, principled from the standpoint of libertarianism and completely differentiated so people feel like they have a different choice. Having said that, that task is getting a little bit easier as the years go by because, for example, Republicans really are no longer fiscally conservative in the same way they used to be. And honestly, I don't think Democrats are socially liberal in the same sense as they used to be. Uh, so uh, we can make the case that we actually represent a lot of people's values in a way that is, you know, more aligned with your core than the other parties. Even if you join the Republican Party in good faith, even if you join the Democratic Party in good faith, you and your party have very likely gone in two different directions over the past 20 years. So we make the case, vote for your values and vote for a libertarian. So all that begins after Memorial Day, once we have a nominee we can really begin competing in earnest with a Republican, with a Democratic uh, Party nominee. And until then, we can make a lot of noise, uh, but people don't pay too much attention until they know who the nominee is going to be. And that will be chosen at an open convention in May. Does that make sense so far? No, it does. You said something about the Federal Election Commission that was interesting because 
uh, I've interviewed several candidates that people wouldn't have known about otherwise if they were not on this forum. And I was, and which leads me to a question I have for you. Outside of people who are libertarian minded, what has been the difficulty of breaking through to accessibility into some of these other avenues? Um, is that just still a major problem being a third party? Yeah, it's a big problem. Uh, I think it's a big problem for a couple different reasons. One is the deep history and relationships between those parties and mainstream media. Uh, it, it, I'm not trying to, you know, invent anything interesting here. I don't think it's news to say that, for example, Fox News is very warm with the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that if I were to say MSNBC is very warm to the Democratic Party, I don't think that's going to shock anybody. In more subtle ways than those two obvious examples, other media outlets tend to be aligned with one of the major two parties or the other. This makes it difficult for a third party. And it's also the case that the media uh, is typically in, in business, right? There's, these are commercial organizations they are not running charities. They need to make money. They need to boost their audiences. Why would they have someone on if they don't think that that individual has a big audience already? Well, maybe if they don't have a big audience yet, at least they're a member of a party with a big audience. Mm -hmm. This is why if you're, uh, you know, number 10 on the Republican list, well, a lot of Republicans will watch even if they haven't heard of this uh, guy or gal, right? But it's trickier if you're a libertarian. Well, when's the last time we had a libertarian president? Never. Uh, we haven't even had a libertarian disrupt the, the process in a significant way since Gary Johnson reached double digits in 2016 in some polling. But then his campaign imploded uh, soon thereafter, and he only got something like 3.5% of the final vote. And so people are naturally skeptical. If I pay too much attention to a libertarian, am I wasting my time? And it's up to us to make the case that you're not wasting your time in the sense that you need to pay attention and, and support your own values and your own principles. And the more you do so, the more the media will recognize that there's an interesting story there not just from the standpoint of interviewing someone whose values align with a lot of our viewers, which is important, but also there's a lot of people out there paying attention to this. Maybe this time is a party that could disrupt the system. Yes. Um, you mentioned the last episode that there was 50 state ballot assets for the Libertarian Party. This question is directed more towards the the structure of the libertarian party as it stands now i haven't investigated for a reason because i want to speak to someone directly about it but what is this um talk about the overtake of the libertarian party with the the mises caucus and is that does that have anything to do with the gary johnson wing of the libertarian party or is that just something completely different like what exactly was that no it's related it's not a hundred percent overlap in terms of the nature of the issue but it's related um you got a, a few things there. Let me unpack them. First of all, regarding ballot access, uh, we did have 50 state access last time. We don't know with certainty at this moment whether we will be on the ballot in all 50 states next time. We hope we will. 
We've got a couple of states in which that's an uphill climb. So we'll see. A lot of money, a lot of hard work uh, still to be done uh, to achieve that. Being on the ballot in all 50 states is, of course, the, the holy grail. Uh, it's, it's, it's not yet obvious we'll be able to, to grab that. So if there's anyone in your audience who wants to help in that <laughs> regard, uh, reach out to me through the website. I can put you in touch with the right people. Now, regarding the takeover, uh, yes, takeover is not the, the most graceful language. Right, right, right. But uh, there was a change in leadership of the party, meaning a new individual is voted in as the party chairman, vice chairman, treasurer, secretary, a couple of new changes on the Libertarian Party National Committee as well. And in large part, this was uh, a, a group of people coming in that had not had national experience in the party before, but were supported by the Mises Caucus, a caucus named after uh, von Mises that you and I were discussing earlier, uh, just as a matter of branding. They're not Austrians. Uh, they're not all economists, but- See, that they, threw me out too. That was a- Yeah. Okay. But they do all appreciate uh, the uh, Austrian School of Economics way of thinking. And so they named their caucus after- after uh, von Mises. So it's the Mises Caucus of the Libertarian Party, which is to say a, a group of the party, probably about half the party. Um, I, for example, am a member of the caucus, full disclosure. Uh, the caucus gained a lot of membership, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of energy and money over the past, uh, I would say three years, but accelerating through the 2020 presidential cycle, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people joined the caucus out of a sense of frustration with how that presidential cycle went, feeling that we did not do a couple of things, the things that I described earlier, uh, running a bold message based on principle, even if that means, for example, not uh, making nice with the maximum number of voters, but using the opportunity to get our message out in a way that would let people know a little bit about what libertarianism is, what it's about, what it does, even if it doesn't get us elected, the feeling was, well, gee, what are we doing here? At the very least, we got to run a message campaign that educates people, because if we're not getting someone elected and we're not educating people, now we're just wasting our time completely. Mm -hmm. And so there was a feeling that we ran the wrong style of campaign in 2020. And there was a feeling that a lot of the leadership of the party supported running what a lot of Mises Caucus members would characterize as too mild a messaged campaign, and that we had nominated a person who was comfortable making people comfortable as opposed to nominating someone who is comfortable making a certain number of people uncomfortable, uh, being someone who would speak the truth, even if it's not something that everybody wanted to hear. Earlier, you and I were talking, uh, letting people know that Social Security is, 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 not, is not a good idea. Um, the way it's structured, you know, 
maybe the people that put it together had great intentions and were great people, but it hasn't worked out the way that even they would have suggested they wanted it to work out. It needs to be restructured and I would argue uh, replaced. That's just one little example, but you get my point is that if you were terribly interested in making friends with a maximum number of people, you would shut the hell up about the shortcomings of the social security system. So uh, the Mises caucus uh, gained enough steam and membership to eventually vote in one of their own, Angela McArdle, uh, as chairman of the party and to replace most of the party leadership. As you might imagine with any disruptive change, whether it's in a political party or any other organization, there was pushback, plenty of arguments, probably some things said on both sides of, of those arguments that given the fullness of time, uh, people would have said differently. So there were some hurt feelings. Uh, the jury is still out on how well performing the leadership of the party will will uh, turn out to have been in the fullness of time. We we uh, we wait and and see how that goes. Personally, I re remain totally supportive of the leadership. Uh, I think that they've done a good job starting from a relatively cold start and. Uh, I'm optimistic that things will work out. They have done some things very innovative and very different from the way things were done in the past. You, you got to give them that. Um, for example, uh, the leadership of the party reached out to other parties, parties with which, you know, with whom we have nothing in common, except for the fact that we're angry about foreign policy in the United States being too militaristic, being too war friendly right and we had an anti-war rally in washington dc we had uh a few thousand people there i gotta say by any objective metric that was a successful event and not so something that uh the party did much of in the past so that's just one little example but you get my point is that sometimes just change and, and, and therefore the innovation that comes with it can be good uh, per se. So uh, that's a little bit of background on what the, the takeover was all about. There are other caucuses in the party. Um, I have participated with those other caucuses as well, the classical liberal caucus and a caucus, an older caucus called the radical caucus. I'll leave it to your imagination to figure out what, you know, the, the radical people within a radical uh, party, uh, they are wonderful. And uh, they'll push you, they'll make you think. And the classical liberal caucus, they will make you think. I have participated with each one of them in some fairly robust conversations that blew my hair back. I was really grateful for the opportunity to, to hear what they had to say and to participate in those. So it is not true that the Mises caucus is the only one that is bringing innovative ideas uh, to bear. They're just the, the big one that is brought the most change lately. And and I think that, like I say, in the fullness of time, I think we will look back and say that individual commentary, individual tactics notwithstanding, we have to admit we're grateful that the change was made. I appreciate that explanation. It makes a lot more sense. It sounds more um, of a there were probably some disagreements, but it sounds like stylistically the messaging 
was a major component into that change. Um, and that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And to kind of go to what you were saying, and I'm not even saying this because you're on the show, just looking at your site, you have very much Mike Terramont-specific views. It's not like something that if someone's a casual, they're going to look at libertarians like, oh, they're just so they're program maximalist type people. That's all they talk about is the Second Amendment. But that's not true at all. You you have to look at every everyone's got a different platform. If that yeah. was the case, that wouldn't be a point of having 20 different libertarians running. If everyone had the same platform, there's obviously not the same platform. And well, so that's that's an interesting point, and you're right about that. We do get into some detail on the website, and and a lot of stuff is written there that's not exactly to your point. Is not exactly the way a different libertarian would have written it, right? Mm -hmm. Basic principles, I think most of us agree on, but priorities, how to go about certain things, uh, those are those are all different. So, so switching gears to that. We're going to dedicate about 25 minutes to this because we do have some time constraints. I don't want to keep Mike here for two more hours. I mean, <laughs> all right, let's go for it. No, we, but we'll go for at least 25 more minutes and then just kind of see where we are. But um, I want to look on your site directly. You have the Gold New Deal, which um, is intriguing. And your site as a whole is very well developed. Um, I think the messaging is concise. But I do have some questions just to clear up just some things that I may misinterpret. Yeah, let's have, go for it. We talked a lot about decentralization the last episode, and that makes total sense the way you explained it. Previous to that episode, I didn't have, I was like, what exactly is this? But after the episode, I felt a lot more knowledgeable about what decentralization entailed. So I'm okay with that. Preserve individual autonomy. You have that bullet point on. I completely understand what that is. So my question, I guess, goes more to if there are governmental agencies that we're talking about under a Mike Chairman presidency, which would be agencies that you would just completely abolish? Yeah, all of them. Um, that's an exaggeration, probably. But <laughs> I was, look, I, was, I almost think it's true. <laughs> well, uh, look, uh, it is true that every agency of the federal government has gone too far. From a libertarian point of view, everything that the federal government does really should be done by a state instead. Really, with the exception of national defense, and believe me, there are those who argue that even national defense should be handled by a coalition of states. Mm -hmm. Let's set national defense aside. Everything else the federal government does really should should be handled at the state level. There's no reason states can't handle these. And the benefits, of course, are that states are more responsive uh, to their constituents. And uh, we learn from states, you know, when something goes right, when something goes wrong, uh, we learn what works, what doesn't, we're able to implement it in, in other states. States learn from each other all the time. And so we make progress much more rapidly in how we understand public policy to work when it's handled at the state level. Specifically, for example, uh, and but but for different reasons. So let me pick a, a, a couple different examples to illustrate different points. 
getting rid of the IRS is terribly important because not just because it goes about its business in such a militaristic, heavy-handed, and one might argue unsophisticated and ham-handed way, all of which is true, but it fundamentally changes the nature of the relationship between individuals and the federal government. The way we feel about the federal government is very different because of the IRS, right? Because of the income tax. We believe that the IRS should be retired and instead, to the, extent, to the extent to which the federal government needs to raise money, it should do so from the states. States should be the ones that provide revenue to the federal government. Yes, federal government should be charging user fees when it provides a service, but short of that, if it needs more money, that should be handled through the relationship between uh, state legislatures and the and the federal legislature. Anyone who's ever been audited knows that that is uh, an imbalanced relationship between you and the federal government. That is not a fair fight. You need the state to stand up and represent you. States are in a much better position to negotiate with the federal government. Otherwise, the federal government is just raising money and spending it willy-nilly without uh, much pushback at all. So that's just one example. Another example is the FBI. There's no real good argument why we should have a Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, if, you, if you think of the FBI as being three parts, uh, one part being political stuff, I would argue that it shouldn't be involved at all. One part uh, going after bread and butter crime that is already illegal in all 50 states. You don't need a, a federal police apparatus to do that. That can be spun off to state agencies. And then if you think about the third component, the FBI would argue that it exists because of an anti-espionage necessary function. Well, that should be spun off to the Defense Department. And if, if it is really true that that is a defense function, it should be handled by the Department of, uh, of Defense. I would put it in the Army particularly. So that's just, that's just one example. And then you have all the regulatory agencies which are not set up merely to be regulatory agencies, but they've turned themselves into such. The Department of Education, the Department of Transportation, the Department of Energy, for example. These agencies, and, and then you've got, um, uh, you know, the agencies that uh, concern themselves with uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, you've got alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. These are agencies that exist underneath other departments, but all of these have a certain amount of political power because of their funding. And you've got to reduce their political power so that you can retire them in the long run. It is, in my view, completely inappropriate that the federal government uses money to manipulate states and doing what it is that they want them to do. States should be making decisions for themselves, right? They should not be bribed by the federal government, which is in effect what happens. If you or I, obviously more likely you, I'm not a personally a billionaire, uh, you are probably a man of greater means than I am. If, if you were to bribe a state into changing its policy, you'd be accused of committing a felony. You'd go to jail for that. But the federal government does it with impunity, of course, and, and uh, asserts that it is its right to do so, which I find honestly kind of weird, not just bad public policy, but that strikes me as a little bit weird. That's kind of a strange thing if you spend too much time thinking about it. So 
uh, one of the things that that we suggest is that we need a constitutional amendment giving states the right to nullify federal law that conflicts with state law and to resolve such conflicts in state court. In other words, to opt out of federal supremacy, the doctrine of federal supremacy. There's no obvious reason why federal law should be supreme to uh, to state law. These conflicts should be resolved in state court. States should be allowed to chart their own political uh, paths, their own political futures. They're more responsive to their constituents and they're and they're smaller. So there's every reason to to make that argument. And then the, the last uh, example that I would suggest, which is different from the others, is the Federal Reserve System. It's different for a couple different reasons. Uh, it does not handle retail customer relationships like some of the other agencies uh, do. It is a quasi-private, quasi-public organization. It is ostensibly owned by banks, but the President of the United States appoints the uh, leadership. It operates pursuant to uh, a federal charter. It is guided by federal law. Uh, federal law requires banks in certain circumstances to be regulated by the Federal Reserve System. So to say that it's private sector would be sophomoric. That's not really the case. It's, it's, a, it's a mix, right? And the problem with it, of course, is that even though it's a an organization full of great people that want to do the right thing, who are very smart, it has proven that it is incapable of living up to its mandate of of damping down the swings in the in the business cycle, uh, making sure that we don't go into recessions and and avoiding the huge uh, peaks and in inflation and all that, it just can't do it. It's time for us to recognize that, accept it for what it is and replace discretionary monetary policy with a rules-based system. And so I think that we need to get rid of the Federal Reserve System for that reason. I think we need to keep the Fed uh, away from bailing out corporations, bailing out banks. I would transfer the Fed balance sheet to the Treasury Department and make it subject to federal legislation to slow down these bailouts. And I would not require banks to be regulated by the Fed. Banks can pick uh, to be regulated by their state uh, banking regulator or by the Treasury Department or by the FDIC or by a private sector organization. They don't have to be regulated by the Fed. The Fed manipulates those relationships in ways that are not helpful to the development of our economy. So I would get rid of the Federal Reserve System lock, stock and barrel, but for arguably different reasons than the, the other agencies. Does that make sense? It sure does. Um, we're in unison. Trust me, Mike, we are. I'm, I'm taking notes. I'm listening to you. You're talking, <laughs> And um, you you set it up perfectly. You mentioned the rule-based monetary policy. We talked about that last episode. Um, my question for you would be, I never asked you this last episode, we alluded to the gold standard. Um you you would propose going closer to the gold standard. My question would be, why not just go back to a gold-based standard? Going all the way to the gold standard would mean fixing the price of gold. And uh, it would lead to potentially, I should say probably, would lead to a deflationary environment instead of an inflationary environment. And we don't have experience or data or theory that suggests 
that a deflationary environment would be very easy to live with either. And so I think that what we really want is uh, a rule. The gold standard is a rule, but I would pick a rule that is more likely to predict something closer to zero inflation than I'm afraid the gold standard uh, would be. I would harden the currency. In other words, I think we need a rules-based system to make our currency harder, make our currency more stable, more trustworthy. Mm -hmm. I do believe that it's in America's interest to remain the issuer of the currency, uh, not only of last resort, but of of uh, reserve around the world. So in that sense, we're, we're lucky. I, I do think it empowers our government to do some stupid things, which is not good. But I do believe that a rules-based system would achieve most of what it is that we want with the gold standard without introducing a deflationary environment. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense on the deflationary element. Yeah, that, that creates a whole I worry whole about that. Issues. Yeah. I worry about that. I mean, we haven't lived through it, so it's hard for me to say, because I know a lot of economists have said, well, we could deal with it by doing this. We could deal with it by doing that. I get that. But mm -hmm. uh, that is a big deal. And I worry that a deflationary environment would be very difficult to, to live with on a retail basis. Yes. I Okay, so this is related to, because before we discuss that you talked a lot about the states and that is something that i'm still honestly trying to process because we talked about that some the last episode about this whole idea of decentralizing to what point because it, you could easily make the argument that okay well if the state has all the power i mean you're back to square one again you have another problem i mean you just, you don't have a bigger government you just have a more concentrated government that's still doing the same type of restrictive behaviors you know, towards the citizens. But I guess my question would be, you mentioned military interventions and that that should go back to the states. Um, why don't we just let the people decide that across the board in the country? Is that the same thing? Um, what would be the difference between letting each state decide that versus letting the people just cast a vote like you do every four years or whatever? Why wouldn't the people just decide that kind of thing? Sure. Uh a uh, lot to unpack there. You got some good thoughts. Um, let me start with the way I would run foreign policy uh, from a from a war standpoint. If in a libertarian administration, I would suggest that the right way to handle things is no military intervention without a declaration of war, without a formal declaration of war. That would require a vote of Congress. It would require a formal declaration by the White House. I would furthermore go the next step and say, it would have to be supported by a majority vote of the states. To make it uh, as difficult as possible, because personally I'm anti-war, but also to make it as earnest as, as possible. I don't like the idea of going to war without the backing of the American people. I recognize that people have been manipulated into supporting war lately. And by lately, I mean the last hundred years, mm -hmm. right? Forever. Uh, since the, the dawn of time, perhaps, people have been manipulated into going to war on behalf of leaders who found it in their own personal interests, even if it was not in the interest of, of, the, of the population, of the citizenry. So uh, I don't have a silver bullet for that. But 
I do believe that we need to make it as difficult as possible and for the declaration to be as broad based uh, and therefore as slow and methodical as possible. Obviously, you would leave room for discretionary authority for the executive if we were attacked, for example. I mean, if there are exigent circumstances, truly exigent circumstances, truly an emergency, you would obviously want the White House to be able to react. We're not talking about that. We're, we're talking about the, in effect, discretionary wars that we have had uh, for, for generations. I would make them as difficult as, uh, as possible. There is uh, an argument, there is a debate to be had about whether our military should be controlled at the federal level at all. Uh, to your point, one of the things that, that the Libertarian Party has rallied around is this uh, idea, a movement that, that is called Defend the Guard, which is to say that each state's uh, guard needs to be under its own control. It cannot be federalized without a, a declaration of, uh, of war or under certain other circumstances, because otherwise you have this weird situation, as I believe that we do largely now, which is ostensibly they're under each state's purview, but the federal government calls the shots, right? And that's not that's not what we want. We want the decision making to be as uh as decentralized as 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 close to the voters as possible. Mm -hmm. So that's what's that's what's going on there. Does that make sense? Yes. Um that's what I was getting at. But it seems like I guess it seems like that would almost be adding another safeguard in, right? Because I guess what I would be proposing is like, let's just let the people cast a vote. But I guess I get what you're saying because if these same people can be manipulated into supporting a war in the first place, then you would just be expediting the war. Like you said, I, I'm very much anti-war at heart too. So I guess in that case, a safeguard would be necessary. Well, uh, the population just isn't dictating a yeah, it, it is a tricky thing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I'm not quite ready to throw over the side of the boat, the whole idea of constitutional, you know, <laughs> republic. Um, <Yeah. laughs> and, and that's not to say that I don't have days when I wake up thinking the Constitution has let us down, right? Best efforts, notwithstanding, best intentions, notwithstanding. It is not a document, albeit a, a very libertarian document. It is not a document that has provided the safeguards that we obviously needed to keep itself in force. Mm -hmm. uh, but having said that, I'm still willing to uh, make the case and build the argument that we need to fight our way back to the Constitution. And if we can get closer to the Constitution than we are today, that that would be a win. I do believe that we live in a post-constitutional America. But I would rather fight our way back toward the Constitution than go full democracy to hell with the representatives. We're just going to ask the public to make decisions by referendum. That also makes me very nervous. Mm -hmm. That makes me nervous from the standpoint of, does that mean that we're handing all kinds of authority to media companies now? Yeah, I mean, like you said, there's lots of different ways you can take that. It's not an easy fix. Um... It sounds good to, in some instances, but there's always complications with anything that sounds too good to be true. There's always more to it than what it seems at the eye. Yeah, um, for yeah. sure. I, I worry about direct democracy a lot. You have on um, the Gold New Deal, 
allows um, phase out of public education. I'm still trying to figure out how that would even work out, but that goes into your premise of gutting the Department of Education, right? Because I know Vivek Ramaswamy is, he's saying that too on the Republican side about just like eliminating the Department of Education, but I don't know if it's the same language you're speaking. Well, what exactly do you mean by that allowing the phase out of public education? Sure, uh, two thoughts. One is even if you even if you like the system we have now, I don't think that we want to have a federal Department of Education. The, the Department of Education is in the business of taxing people and then giving the money back in a way that manipulates local school boards, manipulates states into writing certain laws for local school boards that the federal government wants. And I just find that an inappropriate way to, to conduct business by taxing us and then using that to manipulate us back. I think that however you feel about public schools, however you feel about private schools, at the very least, I want us all to agree that how school boards are run should be decided at as local level as possible. The parents should be involved. Uh, I'm not a big fan of these situations where the parents are marginalized and the school boards make decisions for them. Uh, I think that that's a, a, a deep problem. Parenthetically, there are specific cases where the school boards make profoundly stupid decisions but you know we can all agree that we don't want stupidity but what i'm talking about is as a more general proposition we want parents to be as involved as as, as possible the big idea here is that we want as much competition as possible at providing the service providing the business of education i believe that it is no coincidence that primary and secondary education this is one of the most monopolized industries in the United States. I don't think it's a coincidence that it's also one of the most poorly performing industries in the United States. We would not put up with such monopolization in any other business, right? Uh, pick any wacky example you want. If you said that business is going gonna, is gonna to be run by the state and we're going to have local boards decide how that's gonna be provided. And there's only gonna be one provider. You'd say, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> this is still America. I'm not putting up with that. I don't care what the product is. I don't care if it's staplers. It, this is not, it's not the way it's gonna work. Now, if I tell you, it's arguably the most important service in the world, and we're gonna set it up in the worst economic way possible. That's bad. <laughs> I. I don't even have vocabulary to describe how bad that is. That's that's bad in a way that undermines society bad. Mm -hmm. So the point is that we need more competition to provide those services. So if you like, as I don't, but never mind my druthers, if you like the idea of localities taxing people, mostly through property taxes, not exclusively, raising money for the purposes of primary and secondary education. If you like that system, okay, fine, we'll keep that system. But why would you decide that the only people that they can hire to provide that service is this one school district, you know, this one school in, in, in the district and, and no one else can compete with them? Like, why would you do that? 
that doesn't it doesn't even begin to pass the giggle test. I don't care what kind of economist you are. You don't have to be a Republican or a Democrat. You don't I mean, you don't have to be an Austrian. You can be anything you want. There is no such thing as economic literature that says. And it would be a good idea to pick one organization and have it deliver service for everybody. And we're going to give them a monopoly. It doesn't even make sense. Mm -hmm. So we want the money that's available to provide this service to be available on a competitive basis. Uh, If you like public employees, fine, but they ought to be able to compete with uh, private sector employees uh, in a school choice program and a voucher program, however you want to characterize it and, uh, and, and structure it. I do believe that in the fullness of time, public sector competitors will phase out in a system like that. It seems to me unlikely. I'm not going to go out on a limb and say impossible, but it seems to me unlikely that a public school would be able to compete with a similarly funded private school. I'm going to say I doubt it. Uh, not impossible, but I I, I, I doubt that. Uh, but there's no reason not to test. There's no reason not to try. There's no reason not to try to figure that out. We have seen that charter schools, by and large, not uniformly, but by and large, outperform non-charter public schools. Uh, and, and we find that that's the case, irrespective of unionization. In other words, it's not the unions per se that are the biggest problems, which I found interesting because I was I was fixing to blame a lot on teacher unions, right? I think teacher unions are a problem politically, uh, but it turns out that even a charter school whose employees are unionized will outperform a non-charter public school that's that's similarly uh, unionized. So I, I thought that was an interesting uh, finding in the in the recent literature. But anyway, competition is good for every under, other industry. It ought to be good for education as well. We didn't talk about this at all the last episode, um, immigration. Um, And the biggest thing I have, I've been receptive to hearing different opinions about immigration. I don't know what your view is about um, the border, specifically the southern border. But to me, that kind of creates a problem in itself. Um, When I talk to people about border control immigration, there's not consistency in the sense that if we're talking about a border, why are we emphasizing just one border? And and I understand that there may be um, it may be over um, emphasized for for legitimate reasons, but Canada also shares a border with us. So that's always been perplexing to me that we only focus on one border. No, you're darn about- right. I I don't want those Canadians coming in here either. <laughs> why why would you trust a Canadian? No, uh, look. Uh, that's silly. Uh, you're absolutely right. We put a lot of emphasis on the on the southern border. I believe that the reason we do that is because so many people are, are crossing that border. Uh, it is where people are most motivated to do so because we see so much poverty south of the border from Mexico as well as from the rest of Latin America, particularly Central America, but also from around the world. Uh, the Mexican government has had a very difficult time uh, However you feel about control and however you measure, evaluate, or characterize control, Mexican government does not have much control over that nation. And so you see uh, immigration into Mexico that is out of control 
and that leads to immigration into the United States. So it's just a matter of uh, volume, uh, I think, is the reason why there's so much emphasis placed on the southern border. I was in Mexico. I beg your pardon. I was in Arizona at the Mexico border uh, earlier this year and saw for myself the the biggest problem there, in my view, the biggest problem there is the humanitarian crisis represented by human trafficking. It's out of control and it is heartbreaking. Most mm -hmm. people who come to the Mexican border uh, do so with these uh, coyotes and other human traffickers. They are then handed off to another human trafficker on the other side of the border, on the American side of the border. And they are, in effect, sold into indentured servitude and a host of uh, situations that are even worse, into which I won't go in detail because you have a family show here, but you can use your imagination. It is desperate and hor horrifying, absolutely horrifying. This is not something that we should be putting up with much less fostering. I mean, it, there's no way to say it other than bad public policy has created this situation. Anytime you have an activity that the government has decided to make illegal, but cannot stop for whatever reason, technological or cultural, you create a black market and black markets kill. Once you drive something underground, you can't control it. You can't stop it. You can't provide services to it. You can't support it in a legal, safe fashion. Uh, it killed. That's that's the fundamental problem with the drug prohibition that we don't have time to talk about today. But use your imagination. It's the same idea. So uh, truly, the solution. Uh, one solution is to completely throw open the border. And I recognize that most Americans are not comfortable with that. They believe that there some vetting process has to take place. Mm hmm. Okay, I'm not insensitive to that. But when I worked for the White House, for example, and I do realize this is not an apples to apples comparison, but it's not apples to baseball bats. Uh, we were able to clear someone into the United States in 90 minutes. When I was an economist with the White House, we can get someone into the complex in 90 minutes. Don't tell me it takes months to vet someone across the Mexican border. We need to put whatever resources are necessary at the border to dramatically increase the rate at which we can vet someone in legally. I believe that we need to put whatever resources on the border that, that are necessary in order to discourage, to stop illegal border crossings, not because I've got a problem with people coming into the United States, but because I don't... Uh, I believe it's our obligation to stop human trafficking. So I would shut down the border, except for legal immigration, and then dramatically, not just increase, but dramatically increase legal immigration. Immigration is good for the United States. It's good for us culturally. It's good for us economically. It's good for the fiscal position of local governments. It's good for the fiscal position of the federal government. There is no economic argument against immigration. There is also no cultural argument against it, I believe, in the long run, certainly. I believe that immigration is one of those things that literally defines America. It is one of the few things that makes us very different from anybody else. It's, it's all well and good to say 
yours is a nation of tolerance. But nobody should be pretending they hold a candle to the United States in terms of the cultural tolerance that we have exhibited that we make true every day through immigration. I wish that we were as good at exhibiting tolerance in other ways inside the United States as we are with immigration. Uh, you know, all the, pro the problems that we have in the United States in the, in the tolerance category, you know, we have problems uh, with racial uh, tolerance. We have problems with political tolerance, big time. We have uh, problems in uh, terms of sexual orientation. We'll have to do another episode. But uh, when it comes to immigration, this is one of those things that traditionally we have gotten right, mostly, not uniformly, but mostly it's one of those things that we have done that Americans, I think, can correctly point to and say, uh, this is something that we of which we should be proud, that defines us, that separates us from the rest of the world. And it's good foreign policy when we get it right. And we look like idiots when we get it wrong. So I believe that we need a much more pro-immigration policy, a much more pro-immigrant policy. We need to treat people with respect and with dignity. We need to get them into the United States and we need to tell them to work. The idea that we should let someone in the United States and then tell them you can't work, that's right. bass backwards. Yeah. I would rather have a policy that says, I'm going to call you in two weeks and make sure you got a job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that opened, uh, I think that will open a lot of eyes to people who um, are still trying to figure out like libertarians, because honestly, I think that there's a dilemma with um, libertarians running for public office not because of the principles, but because of the, the public not understanding. The, the public has a lot of baggage coming in. Um, From politicians, get, no? But, but I'm just saying, I just think that the public, is, yeah, I think the public has cultural baggage, though, because the public, like you said, it is embedded in our political system because you get attacked by people who are conservative-minded because they would be like, you're going to allow people to come in the country like that, but you just explained that you would bet the people. So if you bet the people and they legally come in the country, then what is the issue? You know what I mean? And so if you, I think if they actually took the time to take the position in and just leave the cultural baggage stuff at the door, they would maybe be a little bit more open-minded to it. And then you have the liberals who just think that the libertarians just, it, it, guns are just inherently evil. Um, that's just one example. And yeah. I was one of these times, like, I was just scared of guns. But I'm like, you know what? It makes sense. I mean, what happens if the guns are taken away from us? It's like, we're at the mercy of the government who has all the equipment. And so people have to really start to think of things in different ways and just not get so stuck in their mindset. I mean, the whole process is to grow. And and that if people don't think that they can grow, they're, they're lying to themselves. I mean, there's a lot of room to grow um, on a lot of different levels. Well, that's well said. That is, uh, that's as mature a statement as, uh, as can be made. And we would all uh, do well to remind each of ourselves about that uh, every day. Uh, I hope that we can do another episode uh, in the future. I I'm sorry to see that our, you know, we've 
blitzed through uh, quite a bit, but our time, uh, we blitzed through a, a lot of time. That's and it's fast. Been great. I, I can't yeah. believe how fast the time goes. When, it went really fast. When I'm with you. Thank mm -hmm. you for that. No problem. Um, I know we have to go, but I just wanted to, and you will be back for a third interview. If, if you're willing to accept the invitation, you definitely have an open invite to come on the forum. Um, what would be some last words do you have for my audience um, today? It is that I, I think that, to your point in many situations, I think that in the future, our uh, political argument, in 2024 certainly, it is, not, it is not going to turn, the election is not going to turn on uh, what should be the retirement age of Social Security. It's not going to turn on, should we give another $50 billion to Ukraine or should we give them tanks instead? <laughs> it's not going to turn on what should be the age of consent in certain situations. It's not going to be on detail. I think that Americans are recognizing that they need to speak to their own values and that they need to make their values uh, heard. Now, having said that, I am dead set against politics being overly affected by the culture wars. One of the things that I campaign on is keeping the culture wars out of our politics. But having said that, that's a value that we need to stand up for. If you believe in keeping the culture wars out of your politics, you need to stand up for that. Mm -hmm. And you need to make some noise because the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are not hearing you. Those parties love them some culture wars. But if you believe in, in, in an anti-war policy, if you recognize that military intervention has not served our long-term interests, that we're just not good at it in a strategic sense, if, if you really believe in fiscal conservatism, if you really believe in, in, in being socially liberal and your government allowing you to do what you want to do, without either censoring you or forcing you to take a vaccine. If, if you believe in, in being uh, governed with as light a hand as possible to so see you can live your life by your own standards, you need to vote your values. And in that sense, I think that most people are gonna be ready to give the Libertarian Party a look in the future that they have not been ready to, to do so in the past. And I think that that's because there's a growing recognition that the Republican and Democratic parties have left their old values behind. They are pursuing a new style of authoritarianism, and it's obnoxious. It's not just inefficient, which is what we as economists would say. It's obnoxious. It's offensive. The simple dignity of being able to raise your children and educate them the way you want, many people feel that that's being taken away from us. And I think that most Americans would agree that the simple dignity of being represented by a foreign policy that aligns with your values. You and I haven't even talked about police reform. We could spend a month talking about that. We did last I, I spent, time. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I spent a lot of time talking about police reform and criminal justice reform. Uh, you deserve a police department that is managed so that its values align with yours. If you If you feel like you're not getting that, we need to talk. You're probably right, by the way. You probably aren't getting that, and we need to talk. And I think the Libertarian Party is going to get a look 
that we haven't gotten in the past. I think that we're poised to disrupt the system. And if anybody wants to give my campaign a look, go to MikeTermott.com, which is tricky because you'd have to spell it right. There are two A's in Termott. Or you can go to uh, goldnewdeal.org, which is easier. And uh, my real contact information is there. If you want to get involved in the campaign, if you're desperate to send somebody some money, you can do that there. If uh, you want to just reach out and ask questions, you can you can do that there too. Mike, we appreciate you again. This wonderful episode of 55. And um, I can't wait to replay it, listen to it. Um, it should be out relatively soon. Um, I'll send you all the information once everything's finished with the episodes. But um, beautiful people, this is a wonderful episode again, 55. And um, we will have Mike back onto the show without a doubt. Um, there's a lot more we could talk about. But um, enjoy the rest of your day. Tomorrow we have Jack Rasmus to discuss um, the added um, BRICS nations into the BRICS coalition. There's a lot of geopolitical stuff going on that overlaps with monetary policy. Uh, Jack is an economist too. So we try to bring on different perspectives, but also overlapping perspectives. And so um, I know people will be excited for the episode 56 that's dropping tomorrow. Um, beautiful people, enjoy your day and we will talk soon. Cheers. <laughs>